I'm very glad to be um, here again on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, the uh, the theme for the afternoon's talk is, uh, what is the best religion? So as you're coming to listen to this talk in a Buddhist monastery, you might uh, easily suspect there could be some bias <laughs> in the... Uh, in the the views, but uh, I'll uh, endeavour to speak about uh, the the whole area uh, in a way that's going to be useful for all of us, all of us, whatever our religious disposition might be. Because it would be a mistake to presume that everybody here is a a, um, a card carrying, uh, flag flag waving uh, Buddhist. Now, one of the the, the aspects of Amaravati that uh, Ajahn Sumedho was very keen to um, establish in the beginning was that it will be a, a, a meeting place and a, a, a spiritual sanctuary, a spiritual resource for people of, of all faiths. And uh, over the years, we've had many uh, interfaith gatherings here. And so uh, I think it would be a bit of a mistake to turn this afternoon into a kind of <laughs> uh, carrying the torch just for Theravada Buddhism. Oh, particularly this time uh, in this this era, the religious extremism is uh, very much in the news, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, shocking and um, uh, the painful news stories about uh, the um, activities of the uh, particular Islamic groups, uh, beheading, uh, um, filming of people being beheaded. Uh, it's simply for being uh, not members of their uh, their own faith, and um, that is something that's uh, causing uh, another war to erupt, or continuing a continuation and ex escalation of the war to erupt in the, the Middle East, in the Iraq, Syria, and uh, that area, and uh, this country, uh, Britain being uh, involved as well uh, once again. So, religious, but religious extremism is not something that is confined just to this era, this time, or or uh, to any one particular religion. You know, like uh, the um, I was living in California in a monastery next door to a, a Christian monastery, a uh, Ukrainian Uniate monastery. They were also a community of forest monks, and the first time we were, we were given this land uh, right next door to this Christian monastery, and the first time we were introduced to the abbot there, this wonderful old uh, Belgian uh, forest monk called Father Boniface, Archimandrite Boniface. He, his first comment to us was, I think there are enough monasteries in this valley already. <laughs> like, what? Oh, very nice to meet you too, Father. <laughs> but when it was pointed out that we'd accepted the gift of the land and it would be, we'd be moving in next door, he adapted with impressive speed and uh, we became quite good friends even though he did you know assume that we were uh, worshippers of the devil they, they actually had a their own handmade road sign beside the driveway into their monastery with a with a, a kind of pitchfork bearing devil with a, a kind of a, a line through it like a road sign like yeah devil's devil's not allowed here i'm not i'm not kidding so somebody's made their own 30 mile an hour signs for uh, st margaret's lane well that was a and no devils allowed sign for um, uh, Mount Tabor Monastery. And uh, <clears throat> also, when I was traveling with Lumpur Sumedho in Egypt, we went to visit a, a couple of Coptic monasteries. And um, these ancient monasteries of the Desert Fathers had been 
there for 14, 15, 1600 years, some of them, and uh, the um, in, a, in a similar way, the the, uh, the brother who met us was very polite, very friendly, and and showed us around, but made it very clear that we actually were considered to be devil worshippers, and definitely were um, uh, infidels. But, you know, we were welcome to visit. <laughs> and uh, finally, Ajahn Vimalo made the wise crack. He said, well, you know, you used to have these big walls to keep out the um, the invading tribes, people keep out the uh, the Berbers, and, uh, and now, uh, now you have to open the doors and let us all in. Yes, yeah, yeah, times change. <laughs> so, yeah, to, and to be an infidel just means you're one who is not of, of your faith. And uh, it's also, you know, within uh, Buddhist countries too, it's, it's not confined um, to just uh, Christianity and Islam, but uh, every, uh, every country in India and uh, Sri Lanka, Burma, um, you have these, these groups that um, even be with, with, uh, uh, with Buddhist monastic leaders that are carrying out the terrible acts of, of destruction and defamation against uh, people. In, uh, I'm sure in Thailand as well. You have in uh, Sri Lanka the, um, what's it, the Bodha Bala Sena and the, the 696 group in Burma um, and very happily proclaiming that yeah, this, we're protecting the truth, we're protecting Buddhism. <laughs> Just like the people who are beheading uh, the journalists and, and people in uh, in the Middle East, they're protecting Islam, or the, our good friends at Mount Tabor are protecting Christianity, or their particular brand, the Ukrainian Uniate Christianity. And uh, when I was visiting these Copts, it was really interesting. We were asking them for some details about their, their theology. And uh, the, the, this monk who was showing us around was very, very articulate. And he said, um, we are Meirphysites. We are not Monophysites. And you could feel like, oh yeah, yeah we wouldn't make, we wouldn't make that mistake. We'd never, we'd never think you were a monophysite. No, no, no. Says, yeah. We believe in uh, in God of two natures, perfectly united, not unified. <laughs> right. Okay. Got that. Yeah. <laughs> and for him, I mean, not, not to make fun of it, but for him, that was extremely serious. Um, uh, definition, they were not like the monophysites, they were Meirphysites, not like the other lot. So, um, that uh, tendency that we have, um, just like in Theravada, you know, we were Theravadans, we're Thai forest tradition Theravadans, we're not like Mahayanists, you know, that lot, or those Tibetans, <gasps> you know, perish the thought of those Zen people, ugh, you know, we're not like them, you know, we're bearers of the true, uh, you know, the banner of the Arahants, the, the true way. And some of you might be thinking, well, aren't we? <laughs> but, uh, you know, this, this whole area is, is useful to look at and contemplate, A, because we can see all around us the degree of pain and misery that's caused in the, in the world, in, in, probably in our own communities, where um, that one group takes sides against another based on religious... Um, prejudices and, and insignia just because somebody um, has a, a Muslim name or a Hindu name or a Buddhist name or a Christian name. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, a, a source of great st uh, stress and tension. I used to visit Belfast in Northern Ireland uh, 
in the 1980s. I went there many times, five or six times over a couple of year period. And, the, the, and as a Buddhist monk, I was totally safe. Uh, walking around, walking around Belfast with people from the Buddhist group, and uh, <coughs> and um, uh, <coughs> as we were we, we were going for a, 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 to have a, a meal invitation at somebody's house, who was right on the Falls Road, which is the 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 main uh, Catholic uh, Republican area, and uh, <coughs> and one of the fellows said, well, "Don't worry, you know, don't worry, Ajahn, um, uh, they." Uh, there won't be anybody who's going to have a go at you because dressed like that, you're definitely neither a Protestant or a Catholic. <laughs> so you're not on either side, so they won't even see you. And it was true. It was true. I wasn't carrying the sort of insignia of either being a, a, a Protestant or a Catholic. And so it's one, one of the few places as a Buddhist monk you're kind of invisible. <laughs> so the, uh, the, this whole area is useful to, to look at because it can cause... Uh, stress within our own communities, but also in our own understanding of what is religion and what's the the, the nature of our own faith, our own commitment. But well, one of the, um, the the different kinds of clinging, different kinds of attachment, that the Buddha outlines four particular kinds of. Um, of, of clinging, you have kamupadana, clinging to sense desire, um, <coughs> uh, the uh, um, the clinging to the um, um, to becoming, uh, clinging to um, uh, aspects of ignorance, and then clinging to views, dittupadana. Ditti, uh, the, uh, the clinging to views and opinions. And uh, this whole area uh, of, of, say, believing in a religious system or a particular uh, group and, and attaching to that, this is all in the, the area of, of Dittu Padana, the uh, uh, clinging to, to views, clinging to views and opinions. And um, it, it's a uh, something that the, the Buddha pointed to over and over again. Any of you who've read much of the suttas, one of the most common uh, issues that comes up when he's talking about particularly uh, adherence to different religious groups, uh, he points out, if, you, if anyone who says, only this is true, everything else is wrong, that's like a, a, a categorical way of stating this person's off the mark. They've, gone, they've, they've missed their, their, their path. Um, and that's the way of, uh, it's, it's phrased, only this is true, everything else is wrong. That's the way that it's a, it's a, it's almost stating the fact that someone's <laughs> uh, picking up their uh, their religious uh, conviction. They're they're pursuing their faith in a in a in a way that's going to cause them suffering and difficulty and obstruction. And so that um, that very thought only this is true. Everything else is wrong. That uh, you know we're the, we're the ones of the true faith. Everyone else is an infidel. Everyone else has got wrong view. <laughs> You know, however we phrase it, that uh, it might be coming from a, a sincere intention or a sense of, yes, well, this, I think this is great, but the way we pick it up uh, can cause us problems. And it's a, it's a wonderful phrase that Ajahn Chah used that um, is a, a, a kind of weaves itself through this whole area, which is um, to say, yes, you can be right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. Yes, you know what you say about your faith and, and the, the teachings. It, 
it all might be true. It might, might all make sense. But the way you pick it up, like, uh, uh, and the way that you relate to other people with it, can be um, very out of uh, out of keeping with the dhamma. So that the text might be in tune with with dhamma, with reality, but the way you handle it might be very out of tune, like having a club with meta written on it. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know that the you are um, bludgeoning all people with your loving kindness. Like, <laughs> or as um, uh, T.S. Eliot, no, no, uh, was it C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis used to give public lectures in this country, and he came up with this wonderful phrase once about, uh, someone asked him a question about um, the, the, uh, the necessity for all Christians to act in a compassionate way to, to uh, everybody else. And he said, yes, indeed, it's, it's true for all good Christians to relate to others with uh, with uh, compassion and a, uh, and a um, an attitude of, of sympathy and concern, but you know, sometimes those for whom they have compassion have about them the look of the hunted. <laughs> I'm going to rescue you. Please, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm going to save you. Oh no, please don't. Yeah. But, but we can come at someone I'm out of compassion, out of my loving kindness. I'm going to I'm going to fix you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you and. Our own good intention being acted on in an unskillful way ends up being a kind of uh, creating more problems for ourselves than, than um, certainly than we intend, and, and often we can't figure out why. Well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm following the I'm following the rules. I'm, I'm sort of fulfilling the uh, uh, the uh, um, the obligations that seem to be a, a appropriate to the teachings. And, and aren't I doing the right thing? But we don't notice that it's the way we're picking it up and we're acting on it that's causing difficulty. Now, the, um, this uh, attachment to views, the ditu padana, uh, in those of you who are familiar with the um, the metta karaniya metta sutta, will be uh, re- will recognize that um, that phrase. It comes towards the end of the the karaniya metta sutta, ditin um, padana, uh, the. Uh, <coughs> The way we translate it in our chanting, it's an interesting little story around this, because uh, those of you, when we first translated the Karani Metta Sutta into English, uh, the way it read was, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. Then uh, I went away to America, uh, to living in a monastery there in California for a while, and then when I came back, then fixed views had been turned into false views. In the translation, some of you might have noticed this. Uh, that now it reads um, by not holding to false views. So I asked, well, how, how come fixed views got turned into false views? And uh, this was ironic that the, the, there was one particular senior monk in our commu- who was in our community at that time who said, "Well, I think it's very good to have fixed views. We should have fixed views about Dhamma. Yeah, Dhamma is right. So we should hold to fixed views. There are some fixed views that we should hold to." Uh, so it shouldn't be fixed. It's, it's wrong. That's that's uh, it's giving a wrong teaching, a wrong impression in translating that way. And it, uh, it just says ditty. It doesn't say doesn't say false views. Um, so it should be by not clinging to to, uh, to false views rather than fixed views. And as it happened, that particular monk's fixed views managed to get him. <laughs> uh, he was so keen on clinging to his fixed views that he ended up splitting off from uh, from the rest of our group of monasteries. So it was kind of, if you can follow the, the, the drift, <laughs> that uh, uh, he, um, by holding to his fixed views, <laughs> he uh, uh, 
brought about the, a kind of a splitting off of his monastery from the rest of the group of, of the branch monasteries of, of Wapapong, which is kind of ironic. So uh, we're keen to, well, at least I'm keen to change it back to, to fixed views again. That uh, the, <clears throat> because that sense of fixity, uh, fixed views, is, is representative of that quality of clinging. And that uh, if you look at the Buddha's teaching over and over again, it's, it's clinging, it's attachment, it's the upadana that is the troublemaker. That's always what's going to cause us. Even, and the, over and over again, he talks about even clinging to the good, even clinging to rightness, will, will bring dukkha, will bring a sense of division, alienation, and conflict within ourselves and between ourselves and other people. As Ajahn Chah put it, you can be right in fact, but wrong in dhamma. And that instance of the, the monk who objected to, to um, fixed views in the, in the chanting... <laughs> But uh, his his adherence to like no 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 fixed views are good. The the karmic result of that was to to cause him to be split off. You know it's a, his own his own choice, but that that's how it turned out. There's another interesting story I was talking about the other day, um, and this theme where about um, the establishment or re-establishment of, of uh, Buddhism in Indonesia. I don't know if there's any Indonesians here today. No? There's not so many in this country. So this is an interesting tale. So um, to cut the long story short, it's the time. <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> in Indonesia, it used to be a Buddhist country back uh, up until about 500 years ago. And then it was uh, at a certain point, the crown prince had been converted to Islam. And he came up to the king, put his sword to the king's throat and said, um, you know, I'm a Muslim, you're a Buddhist, you're not of the true faith, I'm taking over. And his dad, in true Buddhist fashion, said, very good. Please have the throne. <laughs> yeah, I'll go to the woods, and it, and uh, Dad stepped down from the throne, handed it over to his son, and he and his chief minister, who was very famous, uh, well known, well respected as a meditator, uh, became yogis. They went off to live in a, in in the forest and and just uh, became lay meditators. Uh, but uh, before they left, then the the chief minister made this prophecy. He said, "Well, Buddhism is now going to." Uh, disappear from Indonesia, but in 500 years' time it will, re- it will arise again. Lo and behold, Venerable Narada Tera, famous Sri Lankan elder, started to, for some reason, he had the idea uh, it would be good to visit Indonesia <laughs> back in the, the, the late 50s, early 60s, and um, he started visiting there and giving Dhamma teachings just about exactly 500 years after the prophecy was made, quite by chance. And um, anyway, Narada Tera was a very eminent, brilliant teacher and writer and gifted uh, Buddhist uh, uh, master. And there were uh, five Indonesians who became his, his students and became monks under his guidance. And so then um, this was the, the reintroduction uh, of, of Buddhism into Indonesia. Uh, there really wasn't very much there at all uh, of any kind. So uh, at a certain point, there was uh, a, one of the five... Uh, of, of these uh, of these five monks, decided that he was um, of a higher caliber and that he was really understood the teaching better than the others, and that they didn't really didn't really know what they were talking about, and so um, um, he decided to um, sort of make some some moves in that uh, direction. So he. Um, So, uh, 
uh, in uh, Indonesia, the government introduced the uh, Panchasila, their own version of the Panchasila, the kind of the, their own five precepts, um, which are sort of uh, principles like um, uh, you know, establishment of, of justice, uh, you know, democracy, the unity of the nation. But the first one of these five principles, so they weren't really related to the Buddhist five, five precepts, but they used the same name. They're called the Panchasila. But the first one is belief in the one true God. So this uh, one, this one bhikkhu who came from a, a, a um, uh, 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 who came up with the idea of wanting to be the, the one and only <laughs> um, sort of uh, recognized Buddhist, he developed this kind of theistic Buddhism, where he said, "Well, Buddhism is really uh, it, it's actually a, a theistic religion. We just don't talk about God very much, um, and that uh, actually um, when we talk about you know the Buddha was really the prophet of the God of God, just the same as." As you have in in Islam, and that um, uh, actually uh, the uh, you know, Buddhism is a is a theistic religion, just uh, the same as Islam does. So that actually, um, my brand of Buddhism is um, is quite uh, uh, bona fide and is in um, in accord with what's now Indonesian law. And the other lot, these other four, they're teaching this kind of Buddhism which has no God, which is kind of uh, atheistic. And so they should actually be banned. I think it's best if they kind of get um, removed from uh, any kind of, um, uh, uh, sort of social role or have the ability to run you know, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist temples or anything of that nature. They should be banned. So he put the Buddhism forward as a, as a theistic religion and said it was actually you know, that uh, it was a, just a, a different way of worshipping God, um, but using slightly different language. And... Um, so to their credit, the Indonesian government they received this complaint, and then they um, they decided, well, let's look into this. So they gathered together a group of, of academic imams, of uh, Islamic scholars, and uh, and and these um, four other uh, senior monks, and they kind of said, okay, well, you monks, explain to the imams what uh, your teaching is about. Show you, show them through the scriptures, and then we'll decide whether this this uh, your teachings are in accord with the first of our Panchasila or not. So again, to cut us a long story short, they went into a huddle, and a few weeks later they came out and said, well, actually, when you look at it, um, these Theravada teachings are perfectly in accordance with Islam. There's nothing in the, in the, the Pali canon that these monks uh, revere and in their teachings that goes against, um, goes against Islam. In fact, you know, our own principles of the non-representation of, of the divine uh, we have, like you're not allowed to represent uh, Allah in any kind of form. Uh, this actually matches very well the, the, the principles that are embodied there in Theravada Buddhism. But this other guy, you know, <laughs> that his kind of Buddhism doesn't really have any backup. He's just kind of made that up himself. That doesn't have any credibility. So he was the one that got banned. And the other four got, uh, got the go-ahead and were, were sanctioned by the Indonesian government. This was, this was told, a story told to me by the the um, Sangharaja of um, Indonesia, the kind of head of the Buddhist Sangha in Indonesia. So not only clinging to your views, but trying to put other people down <laughs> uh, has its negative karmic results. Now, uh, a number of years ago, I didn't think of the title of this talk. Um, uh, somebody else came up with a title, but it, it resonated very closely with an, event, uh, an incident that happened uh, quite a number of years ago at the City of 10,000 Buddhas, which is a, a large a monastery of the Northern Buddhist tradition in, in California. And it's actually the, the abbot there 
Master Shonoir was the one who gave um, the land that formed the, the, the original property of Abayagiri Monastery, uh, where I was living, the monastery I established in, in California. And uh, he had a very, like Lumpur Samedo, he had a very ecumenical spirit. He was very um, uh, into uh, the uh, principles of interfaith understanding and mutual respect between religions. And so, and the very fact that he, as a sort of a Mahayana Buddhist uh, teacher, then gave 120 acres of, of land to us as a, a free gift to start a Theravada monastery uh, shows that he was a very broad-hearted and, and generous person. Anyway, he had a uh, an interfaith conference at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, and um, well, you had uh, different Buddhist traditions, different Christians, Hindus, and Muslims, uh, all gathered together for a, a four or five days conference. And Ajahn Sumedho uh, was invited to be part of that. And uh, as soon as the conference began, some local fundamentalist Christians started picketing it. They got their, their placards out, and they were uh, they were barricading the uh, the entranceway into the monastery, uh, and it's a big place. The place used to be the state psychiatric hospital for Northern California. It's a big uh, institution, and and with a whole sort of roadway into it. But the the fundamentalist Christian group were standing out with their placards, kind of defending the Lord, and uh, trying to keep all these devil worshippers you know, from from doing their thing and corrupting uh, the spiritual life of the local people. So uh, <clears throat> as this started happening, then some of the monks came and said, oh, Shurfu, Shurfu, it's terrible, these Christians, they're, they're making a big fuss, they're, blo they're blockading the road, they're kind of uh, giving all the, they're harassing all the people who are coming to the conference. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? <gasps> you know, in this kind of dither and, and, uh, uh, and stressed and upset. And so Master Hua, being the kind of person that he was, said, well, invite them in, of course. Yeah, please, let them, welcome them into the conference. So um, there were, I think there was a moment of wavering of faith in the disciples. They said, okay, well, the master says invite them in, so let's invite them in. So they came in the first wall, they were very suspicious and uptight. And any of the discussions that got going, they would leap in and say, you know, in St. John, chapter 14, verse number 2, it says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and so on. And... Um, <laughs> But after a while, in the general aura of friendliness and welcoming and tolerance and listening, then uh, things settled down. And after three or four days, there was quite a friendly and easy, open relationship between everyone. And just before the conference was finishing, it was time for Master Wa to give his talk. He hadn't got up onto the, the stage and sort of done a presentation up to that point. He'd been the, um, hosting things. But he was, he was um, on, on the schedule to, to give the last talk for the whole plenary session. So he got up onto the stage and said, I'd like to ask everybody a question. I'd like to ask, whose religion is the best religion? And uh, when, when Lumpur Sumedho came, came back and he said, when Master Hua said that, oh no. <laughs> yeah, you could just feel this sort of shrink, shriveling, shrinking. Oh no, this is going to be painful. And, and Master Hua, he, he's quite a, He's quite a performer, so he can say, whose religion is the best religion? Like, okay, we're going to get a real Buddhist diatribe now. Here it comes. And so, <clears throat> and, he, and he sort of let the sort of pregnant pause develop. Whose religion is best? Yours is. Because if your religion wasn't the best, then you'd change to another one. And then he gave this whole talk. 
about how about attachment to views and opinions, <laughs> uh, how the mind takes sides and, um, and grasps this and puts, sets it up in opposition to that, and uh, also how um, we all start from where faith arises within us, what, uh, how, what is the cause of, of faith, what is meaningful to us. Um, we each have a completely unique and individual experience, just like everybody in this room is sitting in a different place. And so we all see this room from a slightly different angle, or a very different angle. And we all have different personalities. We have different ages, different bodies, different conditioning, different languages, different uh, family stories. So each of us has our own uh, completely unique perspective. And, uh, and apparently Ajahn Sumedha said that he gave this wonderful talk, saying you know, how each one of us, we start from where our faith arises. And... Uh, that faith is going to be conditional. The way that we articulate that faith, the way we act upon it, is going to be colored by the family we're born into, the language we speak, the, the, the mental imagery that, that uh, arises in our mind. Also, it can be the kind of experiences that we have, you know, that you have a, a moment of great peace and then, you know, an image of Krishna comes into your mind because you're a Hindu. <laughs> you have a moment of great peace and then, and then the Virgin Mary appears in your mind because you're a, you're a Catholic, or the Kuan Yin Bodhisattva arises in your mind because you're a, a you know Chinese Buddhist. It's that uh, the the, um, the way that we uh, articulate things and the and, and the way that we form our faith is our own. It's from our own experience. It's based on our own our own lives. Um, but uh, uh, that's where we start from. So you can't say my vision of Krishna is real and your vision of the Virgin Mary is not, just because it's like saying, you know, is my finger pointing to the left or to the right? You would say <laughs> it's pointing to the right. I would say, no, 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 you're wrong. It's pointing to the left. Same finger, but we're looking at it from, from a different side. So that... Uh, that uh, is really the, uh, one of the essential principles to, to consider when thinking about whose religion is the best religion. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, we are, uh, it's important for us to respect the, the conditioning, the experience, and the perceptions of others. And like a, a few times, a couple of people who've come and done interviews here or <coughs> come to, to do newspaper articles or doing books, that they've. Um, uh, re recounted their own basis of their own Anglican faith to me. Like one fellow, I remember, um, I think he was a reporter from the Daily Mail, and he said he grew up in Malaysia, and when he was a teenager, he was out at the beach one day, and um, his, uh, his, he wore glasses, and his glasses fell off into the sea, and he was sort of up to his chest or his waist in the water, and the water was, was cloudy and couldn't possibly see, and then... <clears throat> And he said, I just had this feeling if I moved my right foot to about a, a, a foot to the right, then that's where I would find my, my glasses. And, and there was like this voice in my head that says, move your foot to the right. And I moved my foot and there are my glasses. So, well, yeah, so you know, I just believed in God from then on. And so, and he was absent. Why not? You know, it's like, here he is a teenager, and, and he's, oh, damn, my glasses, where have they gone? And then this voice in his head says, move your foot to the right. And then, ah, oh, there are my glasses. And then, uh, and 
And so that obviously had, had a very good influence on his life. He, he said the, it's very difficult trying to grow up as and be a faithful Christian when you're a teenager and uh, and all the trials and tribulations of life. But you know, it's really served me well. But you, I would say, well, interpreting the fact that you had an intuition that your glasses were on the on the the uh, <laughs> on the the bottom of the of the sea, a few feet from your you know a foot away from your your right foot, that doesn't necessarily prove that that uh, there's a creator God <laughs> who conjured the world into being and uh, that Jesus was his only, only begotten son who is our savior. Like that's a kind of what we call an extrapolation. <laughs> but he can't say that, that because he made those connections that that was not wasted. That, that from his own experience, his, his Christian faith had, had served him very well. And um, you know, there are other similar incidents that people people recount that if it was a Buddhist person who lost their glasses, they'd say, well, it was Guan Yin came to help me, you know, so I've had faith in Guan Yin ever since. Well, or, Lord Krishna told me, there are my, you know, your, my glasses are just there on the seashore, on the seafloor. Uh, this, uh, <clears throat> so this, I feel, is an important uh, principle, and it's something that I've been contemplating uh, or looking at uh, for, for a long time. I, I remember when I was il, uh, 11 years old, uh, for various reasons, I decided to sit down and figure out the nature of God. Because uh, certainly what I was getting from the school uh, RE lessons <laughs> and the daily chapel service and such like uh, didn't make much sense. Uh, and so, but I, I could see that uh, Church of England Christianity didn't make a lot of sense to me. But it seemed like God was the most important thing. So I just decided I'm going to sit down, I'm going to try and figure out what is the nature of God, what is this about? And part of what I wrote at that time, I remember that the phrase that that uh, I I uh, I made that same kind of comment that we create God in our own image, that we we cr uh, use our own experience, our own life, our own perceptions to create what we call God or the divine or the the the, uh, the ultimate reality. I didn't have the language or didn't have the phrase ultimate reality in my uh, in my lexicon at that time. But effectively, that's what that's what I was doing. I was 11 years old. I mean, trying to work on it ever since. <laughs> now that um, that uh, that also is very very beautifully phrased. That whole principle is very beautifully phrased by Joseph Campbell. Um, he uses uh, this the words uh, that to which the metaphorical image of our God refers is the fun is the fundament is the ultimate nature of our own being. That to which the metaphorical image of our God refers is the ultimate nature, the ultimate mystery of our own being. And so I thought, well, memorize that one. <laughs> that we create a metaphorical image. We we just say, you know, God is, uh, you know, an old man with a uh, a, uh, a long white beard up in the sky. Or we say, you know, uh, the uh, uh, we say, I, I'm uh, I'm a Buddhist. I don't believe in God, but I believe in. Uh, you know, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. That uh, I'm not. A, I don't belong to. I'm not belonging to a theistic religion, but that's what I believe in. Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, or uh, whether it's a Muslim theology, a Christian theology, or a, or an atheist, you're a staunch Dawkinsite. You know, Richard Dawkins is your god. <laughs> that you're a you're a a, a, um, a materialist. A, a, a whatever it might have, we might form it. We we create an image out of our own 
conditioning and say, you know, this is true. So that uh, uh, that that being the case, that we we create the the metaphorical image of our God uh, is built upon our own conditioning. I would say. And if you're born into a Muslim family, it's going to be one way. If you're born into a Buddhist family, it's going to be another way. If you're born into a, a, a Buddhist family in Japan, it's going to be in one way. If you're born into a Buddhist family in Vietnam, it's going to be another way. If you're born into a, an a, a Aboriginal family in Austria, Australia, it's going to be another way. If you're born into a, a, a tribal family in the in the Amazon, it's going to be a different way. You know, everywhere around the world, you know, we have our own conditioning, and so there's the languaging and forming is going to be. Uh, created and conditioned by our, um, our our language, our education, uh, uh, and all of our experiences. Oh, going back to the question of you know, what's the best religion? <laughs> you say, well, this is all very well, Arjun, but what is the best religion? Um, well, the the word religion in English comes from the, the Latin religio and um, just to go into etymology a bit so that um, it can be taken to 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 mean to relig religio to to reconnect or to relink and that was a, a Saint Augustine a Christian theologian made much of that it's like reconnecting with the divine reconnecting with the, with God or the divine reality um, Robert Graves uh, thought that the, the the origin of it was from the Latin rem legere, which means um, <coughs> has a slightly different meaning, and uh, uh, and uh, you can translate as being um, the the rule of the thing, or to be um, uh, the way in which we choose the right thing to do. How to cho- what helps us to choose the right thing uh, rem, from rem legere. Um, so the best religion is the one that, if you use the word like that, is the one that helps us to to reconnect, is the one that helps us to, to do the right thing, uh, which might not give us much more to go on. <laughs> uh, but also it's, it's interesting to consider the, the Buddha's take on this. And um, and uh, also the, the um, before going to, to the Buddha's words on it, to consider um, how... It, uh, it's the attachment to a view that it causes the problems. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that we, we don't use views or we don't use uh, the capacity to give a direction to our life. But the problems come from clinging to the idea of a religion rather than acting upon what it's encouraging us to do. So like, to, a religion is helping us to, to choose the right thing, or to, to know what the what is the, the best thing to do, and so it's it's giving us guidance as, as to how to act. And the mistake that we make is we we sort of cling to the idea of the religion rather than than following its instructions. You see the difference. And uh, when again when I was a kid um, uh, <coughs> at school, we had this poetry book. Uh, I think it was the Sheldon Book of Verse, Volume Three. It had a turquoise cover, if I remember correctly. And there was one poem in there that had a really strong effect on me. And this so happens, I track it down through the wonders of Google. Um, of course, you can get everything through Google nowadays. And uh, 
So some of you might be familiar with this. It's, it's by a fellow called Lee Hunt. And it's called Abu Ben Adam. And it's in the day, from, from the days when they wrote poetry that rhymed. Yeah, nowadays, of course, it's completely un, uh, politically incorrect to, to write poetry that rhymes or scans. Yeah, that's kind of, it's dismissed as sort of rumty tum poetry. It's not poetry, Ajar. <laughs> but uh, this is from the days of Victorian era English poetry when things rhymed. And this is called Abu Ben Adam. Abu Ben Adam, may his tribe increase. Awoke one night from a deep dream of peace and saw within the moonlight in his room, making it rich and like a lily in bloom, an angel writing in a book of gold. Exceeding peace had made Ben Adam bold. And to the presence in the room he said, What writest thou? Fake uh, old English, Victorian, uh, a Victorian author. What writest thou? The vision raised its head, and with a look made all of sweet accord, answered, The names of those who love the Lord. And is mine one? said Abu. Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke more low, but cheerily still, and said, I pray thee then, write me as one that loves his fellow men. The angel wrote and vanished. The next night it came again with a great wakening light and showed the names whom God, sorry, and showed the names whom love of God had blessed. And lo, Ben Adam's name led all the rest. So I understand English is not the first language of everybody here. And even if it is, it might be a little bit hard to follow. <laughs> but uh, so uh, <clears throat> he, he asked the angel, um, what are you writing? And the angel says, I'm writing down the names of all those who love God, all those who love the Lord. And then Abu ben Adam says, and is mine one of them? And he says, no, it isn't. And then Abu, still cheerily, well, you know, write me down as one who loves their, their fellow men. Someone, you know, okay, I don't love the Lord, but, you know, I love my fellow people. And then the angel wrote that down and then vanished. And then the next night came back again. And, uh, <clears throat> and then uh, he had come back with a list of uh, the list of those uh, whom love of God had blessed, so the, those who are most favorable in the eye of God. Um, and lo, Ben Adam's name led all the rest. So that that was more important to, to God, in this sort of metaphorical image, <laughs> it was more important to God that, pe that people actually love each other than they spend all their time loving the religion, loving the, the, the religious goal. And that had a big effect on me as a as a twelve year old, thirteen year old. And I can remember feeling, yes, <laughs> that's that's it. That's that's more what it's like about because we so easily cling to the idea of a religion and don't follow what it's asking us to do. And you know, also as a, a, a young teenager, I was very happily finding fault with all the people who proclaim to be Christians. You know, like when you um, when your uh, religious studies teacher or the school chaplain lost his temper, he'd say, but sir, I thought Christians were never supposed to get angry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which will get you either you're sent to the back of the class or given to write sides, you know. So, um, so that principle of, of um, not attaching to the idea of the religion is the most important thing. Now, um, the... Uh, Within the, the Pali canon, 
even though the, the Buddha talks a lot about not clinging, you do have a couple of places, or several places, where he, he uh, what is called, he roars the lion's roar, the sihanada, the, the lion's roar, which says, uh, get this. And um, one of the instances where yeah, he says, this is the Majima, this is the, the, the lesser discourse on the lion's roar, where the Buddha says, because uh, only here in this particular tradition, in, in his dispensation, in, only in the Buddha Sasana, only here is there a, uh, a samana, only, well, the, the language of the sutta goes, uh, bhikkhus, only here is there a recluse, a samana, only here is a second recluse, only here a third recluse, only here a fourth recluse. The doctrines of others are devoid of recluses. Like there's, no real, there's no real samana, there's no real religious seeker in any other tradition. That's how you should rightly roar your lion's roar. So it would be easy enough to interpret that as saying that only we're right, everybody else is wrong. So that might seem to contradict what he, <laughs> I was saying earlier. Um, and um, he qualifies that somewhat. And this, uh, the, 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 the meaning of the language of a, a recluse, a second, a third, and a fourth, these are talking about the four stages of enlightenment. Uh, Stream entry, once return, and non-return, and arahant. Um, and uh, what he uh, what he says in a, another discourse that sort of clarifies that uh, a bit, very interestingly, just before he passed away, this is in the Diganikaya, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and he's having this dialogue with, with Subhadda just before he he passed away. Uh, he says, "Enough, Subhadda. I'll teach you the Dhamma. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak." And the Blessed One said, In any doctrine and discipline where the Noble Eightfold Path is not found, no contemplative of the first, second, third, or fourth order, that's extreme entra, once returner, non-returner, or arahant, is found. But, in any doctrine and discipline where the Noble Eightfold Path is found, then contemplatives of the first, second, third, and fourth order are found. Yeah. And then, uh, what, so what he's saying is that, um, yeah, that uh, as long as the teaching has the eightfold path, and not necessarily spelled out in those same uh, same words, but as long as it, it comprises of the eightfold path, as long as that's part of it, then that path can lead to complete liberation. If it doesn't have those those factors of the of what we call the eightfold path, then it can't lead to liberation. So that uh, he is definitely saying. Um, this, you know, and the, this is the, the, the best of, of paths, um, but it's not the only path, uh, or otherwise he would have taught differently. So he, uh, he's presenting things in the best way that he can, but he's also, I, I feel this is really significant. He says that you know, if another teaching, another doctrine and discipline also has these same qualities, whatever you call it, whatever kind of language you use, as long as it has... You know, right view, right intention, you know, right, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on. The eight factors of the Eightfold Path. As long as those factors are there and are, are taught and described in a, in a clear way, then that's the, those teachings can, of course, liberate you. So that's called the, the lion's roar. So some people, uh, I'm sure a few PhDs have been written on it, and people say, yeah, this is the, you know, the Buddha saying, you know, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. 
but uh, I feel it's, it's, it's useful to, to pick that up and reflect. Yes, he, he is saying, we're the best. <laughs> but also, um, that yeah, but he's, he's saying, that what I, uh, I'm teaching you in the best way that I can, in, in, the, in the clearest possible way. But it does, that, particularly that, that dialogue with Subhada, he's saying that it, this is not exclusive to this languaging of it. You know, the other teachings, other forms, uh, as long as they have these qualities, then they can be uh, liberating, they can be beneficial. So then, um, the going back to the, the issue of clinging then, that, so then you can hear that lion's roar, you say, Chula Sihanada Sutta Ajahn, Majima Nikaya, Sutta number 11, uh, paragraph 2, it says, you know, only in this teaching, or the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, this is the only way to deliverance. That the people translate that in that way. Ekayano mago. And they take it as, um, this is the sort of Buddhist version of, I am the way and the truth and the life. <laughs> and uh, they sort of put it on the banner and then <laughs> go charging you know, onward Buddhist soldiers. You know, to uh, Which is, uh, uh, I'd say, completely misunderstanding what the Buddha is trying to do, if you're following what I'm saying. Is that, uh, uh, he, he, he does indeed make those kind of declarations, yeah. the lion's roar. But if we then take that lion's roar and then cling to it and say, yeah, we're right, you're wrong, <laughs> we've got right view, you've got wrong view, we're, uh, we're destined for Nibbana, you guys are in trouble. Then that's just, that's, I would say that's a completely non-Buddhist view. <laughs> it's wrong, I would say just, again, it's right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. You're picking it up in an in a incorrect way. And, that I think there is even a book I think uh, that's entitled "The Only Way to Deliverance," and uh, the, pa- the the Pali in the Satipatthana Sutta is "Ekayana Mago," which you can also translate as a path which goes in one direction only. Doesn't mean this is the only. It could mean this is the only path, but it could also equally mean this is a path that goes in one direction only. Or other ways of translating it, but people have taken it as as a sort of way of counteracting Christian missionaries and saying, no, 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 this is, this is your, um, you quote St. John's Gospel to us, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life, but, you know, the Buddha says, and then you have a fight, which is not very Buddhist. <laughs> so, that, uh, you know, the, that whole movement towards taking a position, clinging, and then contending against others, is intrinsically against the, the, the Buddha's way. And as it says in the uh, Ovada Patimoka, the, the, the Buddha's uh, exhortation, the first exhortation of the Buddha's, Buddha on discipline, he says, Samano Hoti Parang Vihetayanto, one who, who harms or kills others cannot be called a samana. Kanti Paramang Nibanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. Patient endurance is a supreme practice. Uh, uh, all Buddhas say, all those, all those who have awakened say, Nibbana is a supreme dhamma. Nahi pabajito parupagati samanohoti parang vihetayanto. All those who kill or harm others cannot truly be called a samana, cannot be truly called one who has become calm. So, any way of picking up your faith then leads you to, to, to uh, contend or to uh, alienate yourself from others or to uh, to be a cause for uh, clinging then that's a clue that we're picking it up in the wrong way we're, we're not we're not using our faith in the most skillful way 
And I'd like to read a few extracts from this wonderful little booklet of Ajahn Buddhadasa that is significantly entitled No Religion. And you'll be no doubt unsurprised to find that he got into trouble having published this in Thailand, I think also in Sri Lanka, they took great exception to it. But I feel it's a very, very useful teaching, particularly in the light of today's talk. This is Ajahn Buddha Nasa, who was one of the great philosophers, and, uh, and Ajahn Charles Kuti in, uh, in Wat Bapong. Um, he had a, a, a little wicker bench that he used to sit on to receive people. There was, uh, there was only one picture on the wall behind him, and it was a picture of Ajahn Buddha Dasa that sat right above his head. So uh, when you were looking at Ajahn Chah, you were looking at Ajahn Buddha Dasa over his head. So this is Ajahn Buddha Dasa speaking. Ordinary, ignorant, worldly people are under the impression that there is this religion and that religion, and that these religions are different, so different that they're opposed to each other. Such people speak of Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, and so on, and consider these religions to be different, separate, and incompatible. These people think and speak according to their personal feelings, and thus turn the religions into enemies. Because of this mentality, they come to exist different religions which are hostilely opposed to each other. Those who have penetrated to the essential nature of religion with regard to all religion, will regard all religions as being the same. Although they may say there is Buddhism, Judaism, Taoism, Islam, or whatever, they will also say that all religions are inwardly the same. However, those who have penetrated to the highest understanding of Dhamma will feel that the thing called religion doesn't exist after all. There is no Buddhism. There's no Christianity. There's no Islam. How can they be the same or in conflict when they don't even exist? It just isn't possible. Thus the phrase, no religion, no religion, is actually dumber language of the highest level. Whether it will be understood or not is something else, depending upon the listener, and has nothing to do with the truth or with religion. One who has attained to the ultimate truth sees that there is no such thing as religion. There is only a certain nature which can be called whatever we like. We can call it Dhamma, we can call it truth, we can call it God, Tao, or whatever we like. But we shouldn't particularize that Dhamma or that truth as Buddhism, Christianity, Taoism, Judaism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, or Islam. For we can neither capture nor confine it with labels or concepts. Still, such divisions occur because people haven't yet realized this nameless truth for themselves. The Buddha intended for us to understand and be able to see that there is no person, that there is no separate individual, that there are only dhammas or natural phenomena. Therefore, we shouldn't cling to the belief that there is this religion and that religion. We added the labels Buddhism, Islam, Christianity ourselves, long after the founders lived. None of the great religious teachers ever gave a personal name to their teachings, like we do today. They just went about teaching us how we should live. Please try to understand this correctly. When the final level is reached, when the ultimate is known, not even humanity exists. There's only nature, only Dhamma. This reality can't be considered to be any particular thing. It can't be anything other than Dhamma. It can't be Thai, Chinese, Indian, Arab, or European. It can't be black or brown or yellow or white or red. It can't be Eastern or Western, Southern or Northern. Nor can it be Buddhist, Christian, Islamic, or anything else. So, please try to reach this Dhamma for then you will have reached the heart of all religions and of all things, and finally come to the complete cessation of suffering. Although we call ourselves Buddhists and profess Buddhism, 
We haven't yet realized the truth of Buddhism, for we are acquainted with only a tiny aspect of our own Buddhism. Although we be monks, nuns, novices, lay devotees, or whatever, we are aware of only the bark, the outer covering, which makes us think our religion is different from the other religions. Because we fail to understand and we haven't yet realized our own truth, we look down upon our other religions and praise only our own. We think of ourselves as a special group and of others as outsiders or foreigners. We believe that they are wrong and only we are right, that we are special and have a special calling, and that only we have the truth and the way to salvation. We have many of these blind beliefs. This must be spoken about very often in order to acquaint everyone with the heart of Buddhism, non-attachment. Buddhism is about not trying to seize or grasp anything, to not cling or attach to anything, not even to the religion itself, until finally realizing that there is no Buddhism after all. That means if we speak directly, there is no Buddha, no Dhamma, no Sangha. However, if we speak in this way, nobody will understand. <laughs> they will be shocked and frightened as the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha are the beloved triple gem which most Buddhists cherish as the basis of their faith. Those who understand see that the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha are the same thing. That is, just Dhamma or nature itself. The compulsion is to seize and hang on to things as persons and individuals, as this and that. It doesn't exist in them. Everything is non-personal, that is, is Dhamma or nature in its pure state, whatever you wish to call it. But we do not dare to think like this. We're afraid to think that there is no religion, that there is no Buddha, Dhamma or Sangha. Even if people were taught or forced to think in this way, they still wouldn't be able to understand. In fact, they would have a totally distorted understanding of what they thought and would react in the opposite way to what was intended. As Ajahn Buddhadasa said that and then it was put into print, then of course he was absolutely right. <laughs> he wouldn't claim to be a prophet, but sure enough people said, Ajahn Buddhadasa is anti-Buddhist, this is the wrong view, he shouldn't be talking like that. He hates Buddhism, he can't say there's no Buddhism, we're Buddhists. Who does he think he is? He's all wrong. I'm not sure what the tie for QED is. But, uh, but uh, I think Ajahn Buddhadasa said, yeah, that's what happens. People misunderstand it. But I feel this is a very, very significant um, teaching and um, very, very helpful. I think we've even got copies in the library here that you can, you can look at and read. Because it's, it's pointing to um, what the, the, <coughs> the Buddha wished. For us to do that in the uh, the simile of the raft, which I just happen to have. Where's that? Here's one I got earlier. <clears throat> I shall show you, monks, the teachings similitude uh, to a raft, as having the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of being clung to. Listen, monks, and heed well. Yes, venerable sir. Suppose, monks, there's a man journeying on a road, and he sees a vast expanse of water of which this shore is perilous and fearful, dangerous, while the other shore is safe and free from danger. But there is no boat for crossing, nor is there a bridge for going over from this side to the other. So the person thinks, this is a vast expanse of water, this shore is dangerous and fearful, the other shore is safe and free from danger. There's no boat for, or here for crossing or a bridge. Suppose I gather reeds and sticks, branches and leaves, bind them together into a raft. Now that man collected reeds and sticks and branches, bound them together into a raft. Carried by that raft, and working with his hands and feet, paddling away, he safely crossed over to the other shore. Having crossed and arrived at the other shore, he thinks, 
This raft indeed has been very helpful to me. Carried by it, working with my hands and feet, paddling across, I got safely over the, to the, this other shore. Now should I not lift this raft upon my head, carry it round on my shoulders, and go wherever I want to? What do you think, monks? Will this man, by acting thus, do what should be done with the raft? No, venerable sir. How then, monks, what would he be doing what ought to be done with the raft? Here, having got across and safely arrived at the other shore, the man thinks, this raft indeed has been very helpful to me. Carried by it and working with my hands and feet, paddling across, I came safely to this other shore. Should I not now pull it up onto the bank, or let it float away in the water, and then go about as I please? By acting thus, monks, that man would do as what should be done that man would be doing what should be done with the raft. In the same way, monks, have I shown you the teachings of similitude to a raft as having the purpose of crossing over and not for the purpose of being clung to. So, this is one of the great teachings, the, uh, the simile of the raft, that's in Majjhima Sutta number 22, the simile of the snake. And, uh, so, in short, the best religion is your religion. <laughs> and... It's, the, it's the, that which helps you get across, whether you happen to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a, 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 a scientific materialist or you're a, an, an, an agnostic Buddhist or an atheistic Buddhist or you're not a Buddhist. Yeah. There are some people who have been coming here for 30 years, go on like five retreats a year and, and meditate a couple of hours a day and they're not a Buddhist because they don't want to be a thing. And that's fine. I, you're practicing not Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> That's your faith. Is that I don't want to be a, an. I don't want to belong to an ism. I don't want to be an ist or an ism. Nothing. No thing. No attachments. No form. Yeah. No wedding ring. You know. And uh, if that's where your faith arises, fine. Whatever gets you to that safe shore. But then once you got to the safe shore, don't carry <laughs> the raft around because it'll get really uncomfortable. And uh, it's not what the raft is for. So on that note, I'll leave these thoughts for your consideration. Anyone? We'll now have a pause. Uh, the pause that refreshes. Ladar is waiting in the kitchen with her tea and refreshments. And so then it's about five past now. I think. So uh, maybe uh, have 20 minutes for tea. And then we'll have some time for conversation and questions at 25 past.